What's up, guys? You guys ready for our guys' workshop? Everyone got a worksheet from over there? Everyone got, everyone got, everyone got one of these? Everyone got a Bible? Raise your Bible. Lift up your Bible. If you don't got one, there's Bibles over there because we're going to be using it a lot tonight. So make sure. I feel like this is really high up. There we go. All right. Well, tonight we are going to be talking about, as you can see, taking responsibility. Um, but before we do that, would you guys think that you'd be safer, like, like an emergency, like some crisis situation happened, like if you got beat up or you had a heart attack or something, you guys think you'd be safer if you were with a group of people, like a big group, or if you were with like just a couple people, like if there were a couple people, you feel like you'd be, a lot of people would be safer, right? Because you have more people that could help you, more people that would see what's going on and go get help. Someone would do something, right? Someone would be a nurse, someone would be a police officer or someone would come help you, right? But actually, it's not the case. It's actually safer if there's less people around because of this thing called the bystander effect. Now, the bystander effect, I learned about it this week, is this concept that people have noticed actually throughout a lot of examples of this happening is when some crisis situation happens, something crazy, like someone has a heart attack or someone gets beat up even if it's like in a public place, like at school or in a mall or at the beach or even on an airplane, people won't help. People just stand there and watch and pull out their phones and film. And one time, this happened at a beach. This guy, his name was, was Raymond Zach. I feel like his name should be the other way around, right? Zach Raymond. Anyway, his name was Raymond, and he's in the water at the beach, and he's just standing there neck deep in the water, and he's not moving. And people are like, is he Okay. So there's a bunch of people on the beach, they can all see him, and they're like, is he okay? Maybe we should help him. But no one actually goes out there and, and does anything. Eventually, they, they call the police because it doesn't look like he's doing very well. And the police come, and, and guess what the police do? They just stand there, and they're like, are we allowed to go in the water? We're, we're not really supposed to go. I don't know. And firemen come, too, and the firemen are like, okay, usually the firemen, you know, they get cats out of trees, right? So they should be able to get this guy out of the water. And the firemen, you know what the firemen say? Well, that's not our job. That's the Coast Guard's job because he's in the water, so we can't help him. It's like this guy's like dying in the water. He's drowning, and you like, just, oh, it's not my job. I can't help him. So then they, before it gets too late, eventually someone comes and brings him out of the water, but he's already been there for too long. He's drowning. He fell over, and he gets hypothermia and dies a couple hours later in the hospital. The police were there. Firemen were there. A bunch of people were on the beach, and no one helped him, and he died because they all just sat there and did nothing. And see, not doing and stepping up and doing what you are called to do, what your duty is, right? If you're a police officer, your job is to, to help people. If you're a fireman, your job is to help someone. Even if you're an ordinary person, right? Your job is to help someone. And not doing your job and sitting back and, and deciding to do nothing can actually have serious consequences. And as, a, as someone who is a young man who's on their way to, to being a, a grown-up, to being an adult, you're going to have 
duties and responsibilities then, and you can start having some now, and neglecting those, not doing those, avoiding those, or procrastinating those can actually have big consequences. So we're going to look at a passage where a man, actually the first man, didn't live up to his responsibilities, and actually we still feel the consequences today, right? Sin entered the world because of one one man. And so everyone open your Bible to Genesis 3. You guys probably are familiar with this passage, right? There's a snake and there's Adam and Eve, but leading up to this, right, the world is world's perfect, right? There's nothing wrong at all. Remember Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then what does he say every time he makes something? It was good. It was good. On the last day, the sixth day, right, he says it's very good, and everything's perfect. There's no pain. There's no weeds. There's nothing wrong with the world. No one cries. No one argues. Nothing bad ever happens. This world is perfect. And then we get to Genesis 3, right? And Adam has, has his, his job. His job is basically don't mess up, right? One job, don't eat from the fruit. Take care of the garden. You're going to be okay. It's all going to be perfect. You don't have to worry about anything. We get to Genesis 3, and it even starts out, it's, it's kind of weird, right? Because you're reading about how good everything is, right? Even the, the end of, of, verse, of chapter 2 talks about a marriage, and then verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. It's like in those movies, you know, where you totally know who the bad guy is right at the beginning, and like they're trying to hide it, and it's like, no, that guy's the bad guy. I know. That's what's happening here. You, you know, okay, something's weird. This serpent is here. Why is he here? He's crafty. That, that's kind of weird. He said to the woman, why, why is this snake talking? So far, the only people that have talked so far are God and, and Adam. How can a snake talk? It's weird. Something, something's up. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So he, he's, he's saying, did God, really, did God really say this? He's questioning God. So this is, we have a snake talking. He's questioning God. We're like, oh, what's going on here? You sh- did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, let's see what she says, right? There's a talking snake. What, what will you say back to a talking snake? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, it seems like she said what God said, right? Well, let's take a closer look. Go back to, to chapter 2, verse 17. Or actually, verse 16. God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So something's a little different, right? She added something. You guys know what she added? You guys notice? She added something. She said, you can't touch it. Where is that? God never said that. So something, something's wrong, right? She's adding to God's word. The serpent is questioning God. She even says, Un- like, don't eat it lest you die, right? Un- if you die, right? in case you'll die, don't do it. Um, whereas God said, you will surely die. So she's maybe not sold that something bad will happen if she does this. So it's a really weird situation, right? Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now the serpent is contradicting God's word. He said, no, you won't die. Don't worry about that. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So he's, she's trying to sell him on this. The servant is saying, no, this, is, this would be a great thing for you to do. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam, so far this has all been the snake and the woman, right? And Adam, I guess, has just been here this whole time, which is also kind of weird, right? Why didn't Adam do anything? I don't know. It's, it's a weird situation. And then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they realized, oh, we messed up. Something bad has happened. We ate this, and now something's different, right? There's something wrong here. We're realizing things we didn't know for the first time. And then, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And before, right, Adam and God have this great relationship. They talk, and they spend time together, and they, they care for each other. And now when God comes, what do, what do they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right? They know they messed up, so they're hiding. But the Lord, verse 9, God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And let's stop right there, because where has Adam been this whole time? Go back to verse 6. It says, Eve took of its fruit and ate. We're in the middle of verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. You understand that Adam has been here this entire time. Adam has been there when the, when the serpent says, did God really say? Adam was there when the serpent said, you will not surely die. Adam was there when Eve quoted what God said and, and quoted it wrong. Adam was there when she took the fruit and she saw it and she, she wanted it. Right? Adam was there the whole time and what did he do? He's not even mentioned. He did nothing. Now, if you think about this, verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man. What has Adam even done this whole time? Nothing. Why is God talking? Why didn't God call to Eve? Eve's the one who took it and ate it and talked with the serpent. It should be Eve's fault, right? But God calls to the man. Why? Because Adam is responsible. Go back to Genesis 2. When did God give this command to not eat? All right, he put the man in the garden, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it or to guard it. And then he gives him the command, right? And then scoot on down to verse 20. That's when the woman is created, right? Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and then, then he creates Eve. So Adam is responsible for keeping the garden and for guarding it, and Eve is just there to help him. Adam is responsible. That's why God holds him accountable. So you see, Adam has been a bystander to what should be his responsibility, right? Just like the police officer watching some guy drown in the ocean or the fireman watching some guy drown in the ocean, Adam has just been standing there watching when he should be stepping up and doing something about it. And you see, men have a unique responsibility to lead. God has designed you as a man to be someone who takes initiative, who takes action and makes things happen, not someone who just stands back and watches as other people do everything for you. He's given you the duty to step up and lead. So for my first point tonight, I want you guys to write down, don't back down 
from your duty to lead. Don't back down from your duty. See, how do we know that this is, this is all men, right, and not just Adam, right? Because we know Adam has this job. Adam's job is to work the garden and to guard it and to make sure nothing goes wrong in the garden. How do I know that this is just, not just Adam? How, how, why do I have to do this too? Why do, why do I have responsibility? That, that's 6,000 years ago. That's Adam. That's not me. Well, in the New Testament, Paul actually commands men to lead as well. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul's talking about men in the church, and he says that women should not have authority over men in the church. Why? Because Adam was made before Eve. He goes back to this passage we're looking at right before this, right, when Adam was made first. Adam has responsibility because he is first. He was made first. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that, that men have the authority because, they, because of how they were made. Man was formed first, and woman was formed from man. So men are responsible because leaders are responsible. See, Adam's responsibility in the garden, right? He has to obey God's commands. God said, you can eat from every single tree you want except one. You have to be fruitful and multiply. Remember that from Genesis 1, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, right? That's his other command is to, to make more human beings and to take over the earth, essentially. And then the woman is tasked to help him do that. And he's given that command before Eve even existed. And going back to, to that passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls man the head. And if you think about it, what does your head do for your body? Your head leads your body, right? Your head says, your brain inside your head, right, says, oh, my arm is going to move here. Your head says, oh, my leg's going to move this way. I'm going to step this way. My head is saying, oh, my mouth is going to open and I'm going to talk. Right? That's, that's what your head does. It leads. And that's what men are called to do. That's why men are called the head. That's why a husband is head of his wife. But this duty does not mean men are more valuable or better than women. Just because you are a designed for leadership does not mean you are superior to women. That means women are like less human than you are. Just think about it, your head isn't less valuable than your lungs, right? If you don't have lungs, you'll die. But your head is the leader. Your head decides what your lungs do, right? But you still need both. Both are essential. And that's kind of the relationship between men and women. One of them leads, but one of them, but both are essential, right? The culture will tell you that this duty is made up, right? That women and men can do whatever they want and they don't have any responsibilities and that it, our society made it that way. Right? I don't know if you guys have heard the phrase toxic masculinity, right? Or you've heard the phrase patriarchy or things like that, right? And the society will tell you, you don't have this responsibility, that it's wrong for you to lead. It's wrong for you to be assertive. But Paul, right, when he's talking about this, he says, what? He says man was created first. So he's going back to, to how the world was made. It's designed for men to lead. And it's also not based on your skill. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm just not a natural leader. Or maybe you're thinking, I know that guy is not a natural leader, right? We all know people that are better or worse at leading. Maybe you're saying, I'm not outgoing. I'm not ready for that. But see, all men are called to lead because you are a 
man, you are a male. That's why you're in this room and not listening to Alexandra preach over there. Right? And it doesn't matter if you want to lead or not because it's your duty. That's why I phrase it like I did. Don't back down from your duty to lead. Now imagine if people only did their duty when they felt like it. Just think about like, like I work at Chick-fil-A, right? You have. I've seen Brendan there too. Um, so I work at Chick-fil-A. And imagine if the, the people in the back making the food only did it when they felt like it. How often do you think my Chick-fil-A would be open? Do you think it's really their pleasure to make your food? I'll let you on a secret. I'll let you on a secret. It's not usually their pleasure to make your food and serve you your food. So if people only did their duty when they felt like it, right? imagine if our, our army only showed up to fight battles when they felt like it. That wouldn't, that wouldn't go very well, right? What if, the, like, when you called 911, they only answered when they felt like it? <laughs> I'd be like, hey, 911, there's an emergency. But first, do you feel like answering this? Uh, uh, I don't know, man. I kind of like this. So your duty, right, you can't neglect it just whether you feel like it or not, right? And it is work. That's why it's tempting to, to back down, right, is you're going to want to not step up. I'm sure Adam, when he saw this talking snake in the garden, was like, oh, Eve, you, you got it. You got it. You got this one. You can go talk to the snake. I'll just sit here and, and just relax, right? See, there's a, there's a hard, hard task that you have, right? It's to, to take responsibility and to lead and to, to make things happen. And the problem is, is that you, you have that responsibility and you can't work your way around it by saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. Every guy is that kind of guy. And also it's scary, right? Don't be, don't be scared because if you lead, you'll mess up, right? You'll, you'll make mistakes and don't be scared of that. Instead, you have to, to embrace it because if, you, if you're scared to mess up, you're never gonna actually get any better. When I was in high school, I, contrary to popular belief, did not play soccer, but I played trumpet. Um, I was a band geek and there was this guy his name was Johnny, and everyone thought really annoying. The reason everyone thought he was really annoying is because his entire goal of playing the trumpet was to play as loud and as high as humanly possible. That was his goal. So he would just try as hard as he could to play as high and as loud as he could. Now, I, that was not my, my goal was to make music. My goal was not to do that. However, who was, who was really good at playing really loud and really high? Johnny. Do you know why? Because he did it all the stinking time. That was all he did. He would just walk up and be like, ah! all the time. And he wasn't scared to mess up, right? I couldn't play as high as Johnny could or as loud as Johnny could because I was scared to mess up. I was scared that my band director would yell at me or that the other people in band would be like, you're such a loser. You're so annoying, which they've said that about this guy. But he was really good at what he was trying to do because he wasn't scared to mess up. Right? He, was, he was free to, to go and become better at it because he wasn't afraid. He wasn't paralyzed by being afraid. Right? So for some of you, I know that this is, is temptation here is you don't want to make decisions. You don't want to make decisions, and you don't want to step up and, and have responsibility. Right? You don't want to be the guy that takes the game-winning shot. You don't want to be the guy that the whole group project relies on because you're scared to mess up, and that's okay. It's okay to be scared to mess up, but get through that and say, this is my job. I have to be able to deliver when the responsibility is on me. 
And then there's the other way, right, is I, you, you could want responsibility to, and be selfish about it, right? And say, well, I, I want to make the game-winning shot so everyone knows that I'm the best. And you, you want the pressure because you want to make yourself look good, right? You want this leadership role because, because you want to do whatever you want, right? You don't want to actually be responsible. You want to just do whatever you want. You want to spend your youth on yourself. You want to spend your time doing the things you want to do. You don't want to actually do the, the, have the responsibility of cleaning a room and doing homework and listening to your teachers. You don't want to have that responsibility. You don't want to think about having kids and being a dad one day and having to clean your own house and tell your kids what to do because you're just like, that sounds like too much work. I don't want that. I want to do what I want to do. Right? So that's the other temptation is, is you're, you want to be irresponsible, but you still want to do whatever you want. And that's the problem is this, this leadership that God is calling you, this responsibility is a, is a sacrificial leadership and a sacrificial responsibility. In Ephesians 5, when Paul's talking to husbands, he said, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Now, Christ is called the head of the church in the same passage that uh, calls man the head of woman, right? Christ is the head. He's the leader of the church, right? The church is all about Jesus. The church is not about making a good church. The church is about making Jesus look good. That's the point of the church. And so you'd think, oh, it'd be so good to be the leader, right? I get all the attention. The church is all about me. I get all the glory from the church. The people at church love me and sing songs to me and read this book about me. But how does Christ lead the church? What did he do? He humbled himself. He came down as a man and suffered, right? We're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're studying the Gospel of Mark, and we get to see Jesus interact with sinners, right? He left heaven to, to talk to losers like us, right? He suffered, right? He, he was crucified. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. That's the kind of leadership that Christ had for the church. He died for the church. But also presently, Christ is being patient with the church, you know how many people in the church sin against Jesus every single day? You know how many people in the church do things Jesus hates every day? Every single person. And what does Jesus do about that? He says, I forgive you because you're my people. That's the kind of leadership that you are called to as a man. When you think of leadership, I want you to think of, of Jesus and how he leads. I don't want you to think of what the culture is telling you about, about all these musicians who draw attention to themselves or sports stars who are doing everything and pointing at themselves or making themselves look good, right? Leadership is about taking responsibility to serve others, right? Don't use your, your ability to lead to be, to be harsh with people and to make other people do what you want. That's not what it's about. But you still do need to step up and take responsibility now because taking responsibility now will prepare you to take responsibility later, right? Like, I feel like I always illustrate things with basketball, but it's a great sport. Like, when you play basketball, the hoop doesn't start at 10 feet tall, right? The hoop, when you're, like, five, is, like, you know, that little one in your house, and then when you're, like, Micah's height, it's, like, six feet tall. I'm just kidding. Uh, and then, right, but then it, the hoop gets bigger as you get bigger, right? And the ball gets bigger as you get bigger because you're, you're still practicing for the real thing. Right? But it's still real basketball. You're playing real basketball. But it scales up with you. And God right now is giving you responsibilities that aren't as high pressure as providing for a family and discipling children 
and sanctifying your wife, right? God doesn't give you those responsibilities right now because he's training you, giving you smaller responsibilities like homework and things like that. And so for point two, I want you guys to take ownership of your responsibilities. Take ownership of your responsibilities. See, one of the most essential parts of being a man is what we call exercising dominion. And that sounds really weird. But basically, it just means taking care of the responsibilities that God gives you. So what were Adam's responsibilities? You guys remember from Genesis 2? He was to work and keep the garden, right? To guard it. That's what the word keep means. Um, He was to obey the one command God gave, right? Eat anything except this. And then he's supposed to lead his wife, right? Like any husband should. But everyone, go back to Genesis 3, and we're going to look at how Adam totally dropped the ball on all of these responsibilities. So let's start back. We're going to read this passage again. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. Now stop there. Now the serpent. Why is there a serpent in the garden? Whose job is it to protect the garden? Adam. So who let this talking snake that questions God's word into the garden? Who, whose duty is it to protect the garden from stuff like this? Adam. Right? So he's already failing his job. Then. What does the serpent do? He said to the woman. He doesn't say to the man. He doesn't say to the leader. He says to the woman. So what should Adam do in this instance? When a snake is talking to his wife, all these married men know, if a literal snake was talking to my wife, I would intervene. I would do something. I would grab the snake. I would pull my wife away. I would talk back to the snake. I would do something, right? But he's just standing there. He's letting the snake talk to his wife. Then what? The snake questions God's word. Did God really say this? Well, guess who the only person in existence was when God said that? And who did God say that to? Adam. So what should Adam have said there? I was there, and this is what he said. But instead, what does Adam do? Nothing. He just sits there, and he lets his wife answer. And then his wife doesn't even answer with the right commandment. She, she adds stuff to it. She takes stuff out. Whose fault is that? Who told Eve about the commandment? Adam. Adam was there, and then Eve gets created, and then he says, hey, Eve, we have this job. God gave me this job. You're supposed to help me with it. She doesn't know the commandment. That's on Adam. Then, he doesn't even contribute to this conversation. When the the snake says, you will not surely die, Adam should say, well, I just watched God make this woman out of my rib and some dirt. I, I think he could kill us if we disobeyed. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a real thing. And then he lets Eve take the fruit and eat it, and then he joins in. He says, oh, okay, looks good to me. I'll do it too. Right? Adam is not taking ownership of his responsibilities. He's supposed to guard the garden, obey God's word. And he's doing none of that. And see, as leaders, men are uniquely responsible for what happens. Right? As a man, you are uniquely responsible for your responsibilities, and God will hold you accountable. Go to Romans 5, verse 12. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, and he's talking about how we are justified. He's talking about how we can be made right with God, even though we have this sin. And then in verse 12, he starts talking about the origin 
of sin. In verse 12, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through, so he's saying this is how sin came into the world, through one man. But who ate the fruit first? Eve did. She took the first bite. Why doesn't it say sin entered the world through one woman? Is Paul wrong? Is the Bible wrong? No, because who's responsible for sin entering the world? The leader, right? That's why head coaches of sports teams get fired. They don't fire the trainer when a bunch of guys get hurt. They fire the head coach because he's the leader. It's his team. It's his fault. That's why for all you older siblings, that's why you always get in trouble for stuff your younger siblings do, right? Because your parents are holding you responsible. I was a younger sibling, and I got my brother in trouble all the time because he was responsible for me, right? But if you're an older sibling, you know how this feels. You know, I'm in charge, so I'm responsible. And see, you have responsibilities now that you need to take care of. You're part of a family. You can contribute to that family by doing your chores and by encouraging your parents and honoring them. You have a room to take care of, right? You're part of a house that you need to take care of. You have homework to do, right? You have extracurricular activities, whatever, your sports to practice and to listen to your coach. You have all these responsibilities that God has given you. And the thing is, is you have to do these now because you're going to have future responsibilities that are much bigger and more important, right? If you can't clean your room, how do you expect your wife to want to live in your house, if you can't clean your room, if you can't get your homework done, why is your boss going to hire you or not fire you if you can't get your work done? All right, see, all of this is to help you later in life when you have even bigger responsibilities. But most importantly, you are responsible for your spiritual health. You're responsible for feeding yourself with God's word. You're responsible for listening to sermons and soaking in teaching. And if you are an adult, right, and you grow up and lead a family potentially, you're going to be responsible for the spiritual health of your family. And if you're not doing a good job taking care of your spiritual health now, what are your kids going to do? What are your kids going to be like? Are your kids going to read their Bible if you can't even read yours? I doubt it. Right, when you stand before God, and your job as a husband is to wash your wife with the water of God's word and sanctify her, just like Christ is sanctifying the church. What are you going to say? Right? And that starts now. That starts today. That starts tomorrow morning when you have your decision. Do I wake up an extra 30 minutes early to do my DVR? That's what taking ownership of your spiritual life looks like. And so you have these responsibilities that God has given you. And you need to take ownership and say, that's my responsibility. This is my room. And it's not going to clean itself. I have to do something about it, right? This is my small group. I need to care for these people and take care of their needs and love them because it's not just going to happen. I have to go do something about it. So many times we expect things just to just, oh, I'm just going to grow up and, and be a great husband because, of course, that, that's how it works. Or I'm going to grow up and just be a great, a great guy to be around because that's just how it works. No, that's not how it works. You have to take ownership of that and say, the person I'm going to be in 10 years starts with the person I am being now. And this might sound like a lot of pressure because it is. You have a responsibility. Responsibility is pressure. And being a, 
a man is at great responsibility and you will make mistakes and that's okay. Like I said earlier, right? But how you respond to your mistakes is much more important. All right, go back to Genesis 3. We're going to see how Adam responded to his mistake. All right, Adam totally dropped the ball. He didn't protect his wife. He didn't protect the garden. He didn't know God's word. So then, verse 9 of chapter 3. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you, Adam? I need you to step up and lead. Where are you? Hopefully, in 10 years, your wife isn't looking at you and saying, where are you? I need you to lead our family. So God says, where are you, Adam? And what does Adam do? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God's calling him out right here. And what does Adam do? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. He's saying it's her fault. It's her fault. He's not owning up, right? He's the leader. It's on him. And what else does he do? If you read this verse again, I'll emphasize something different for you. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. He's blaming God. He's saying, God, don't you get mad at me for sinning. It's your fault because you gave me this woman and she made me sin. How awful is that? He's saying, God, it's your fault that your creation is messed up because you gave me the woman. He's hiding from his mistakes. He's hiding from God and then he's blaming God and he's blaming his wife. And I hope when you make mistakes, when someone calls you out or when you do something wrong, I hope you aren't like Adam and you aren't a coward. And you stop hiding from your mistakes and you own up to them and admit them. So point number three tonight is stop hiding from your mistakes. God came looking for Adam. Because Adam was responsible and Adam hid from his responsibility. Right? And then Adam blamed other people. How many times when you get in trouble... Do you look at the person next to you? In class, when the teacher says, hey, stop talking. Is that what you do first? When your parent says, who, who left this on the counter? Who didn't do the dishes? Are you thinking, oh, my brother. Is that where your brain goes? When you're out here playing soccer and people's trash is out, and Mr. McGill says, pick up your trash, and you just walk right by your plate that you left there 30 minutes ago. That's exactly what we're talking about. Stop hiding from your mistakes. Stop blaming other people for your mistakes. When you make mistakes, admit them. Face the consequences of them. That's going to happen. You mess up. You will suffer the consequences. And you have to be a man enough to take it, to say, yeah, I messed up, and I deserve the consequences of me messing up. Right? If you don't study for a test, instead of trying to get out of it and cheating on the test, just take the bad grade. Be a man and take responsibility for your mistake. Right? Don't let your pride prevent you from admitting that you messed up. God already knows you messed up. You think God didn't know that Adam had eaten it? And he's like, where are you, Adam? I don't know where you are. God knew. Are you kidding me? But he wanted to see if Adam would, would own up to it, right? 
Don't let your pride, it's, it's pride when you say, I, I don't want to, I didn't do that, or that's not my fault, or it's his fault. You're saying, I could never mess up. God totally knows you messed up. Proverbs 16, verse 5. It's actually a really encouraging passage for those of you who, who are having trouble admitting your mistakes. I want everyone to turn there and get their eyeballs on it. Everyone go to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. See, this proverb talks about how you should respond when you mess up, when you sin. Right? When you let someone down, when you, even if it's something as simple as you make a bad pass, or you let down your group project, or you get out in playing dodgeball, or whatever it is, right? Whenever you mess up or let someone down or bigger things, right? You, you sin. You cheat on a test and get caught. You lie to your parents and get caught. Regardless of how big your, your failure is, this verse is for you. Verse 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever hides their sin, whoever hides their mistakes will not prosper. So if you're out there and you're thinking, I need to hide this, I need to cover this up, I can't admit this, or else things will get messed up. My, my parents will think of me differently, my friends will think of me differently, my grades won't be as good, my coach won't like me, whatever it is, right? It will not end up better for you. But, back in the verse, he who confesses, he who admits, who agrees, and forsakes, who turns from, who leaves behind his transgressions, then he will obtain mercy. It's better for you to admit that you messed up and take the consequences and move forward. Because hiding it just builds up and builds up and builds up. Right at the, actually, I wasn't planning on this, but go to Proverbs 28, verse 1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Why? Because they're guilty. You know when you know you did something wrong and you hear a door slam or you hear footsteps, right? Or you're looking at something on your phone you're not supposed to be looking at and you hear someone moving around downstairs? You get startled. You're scared, right? Because you know you're guilty. And so you, that's what this verse is talking about. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Why? Because they're innocent. They know if I mess up, I'm going to admit it and I'm going to move on. I can, be, I can be free from being scared of people catching me in my mistakes because it's okay. I make mistakes. I'm not going to hide them. I don't have to worry about that. I can be bold and free and courageous because I know I mess up. I, I face the consequences. I deal with it and I move on. See, maybe you're trying to justify yourself and make it seem reasonable that you did mess up. Maybe you're that person who is always saying, well, you know, I, I couldn't do this because of this, 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 this. Right? Just, just admit it. You messed up. Right? You, you didn't get it done. It's okay. You don't have to come up with a bunch of different reasons why. It's okay. Right? Adam and Eve tried hiding their sin. They tried blaming other people. Right? Be prepared to face the consequences of your mistakes, though, when you admit them. But I promise you, the consequence of your mistake will be so much better for you than hiding it. 
because the consequences of making a mistake and then hiding it are even worse, right? And you know that if you've been caught hiding something, right? But see, the thing is, the biggest problem you have is not your responsibility for for all these worldly things, right? Like your house or your room or your homework or whatever. The biggest problem is that you're responsible for something a lot bigger than than this. You're responsible for every single sin you've ever committed. Every single one. You are responsible for. And we try all these different ways to get rid of the consequences of our sin, don't we? We say, oh, well, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bunch of really good things for you, and then it'll make it up for you, right? If I read my Bible tomorrow, maybe, maybe it's fine if I, if I did this tonight. Or, you know, if I, maybe if, if, I, if I, you know, just keep going to church and memorize my Bible verses and make my small group leader happy, then I'll be, I'll be, I'll be good, and God will, God will accept me. Or maybe if I just ignore it. Maybe if I, I just don't think about it, and I just push it off. Oh, when, I'm, when I'm older, I'll become a Christian. Or when I'm older, I'll admit that I'm a sinner, right? But right now, I just want to just move on from that, right? Adam hid himself with leaves. Remember, he, they sewed all the stuff together. And so he's trying to cover up the result of his sin, right? He's trying to cover up the fact that he's naked. And see, so you can keep trying to cover your sin on your own and keep justifying it and say, oh, it's fine, it's fine. It's, I, everyone else does it too. Everyone says those words. Everyone makes those jokes. How could I not do that? You can keep trying to cover your sin by being good enough and say, oh, I'm going to be good enough because God will, God will accept me. You can keep trying to fix yourself and say, oh, well, if I, if I turn and, and if I repent, then, I, and then I'll be good enough to, then, I'll, then I can trust Jesus. Or, right, Adam tried to avoid for a God. He tried to hide from God and hid from the reality that he was guilty, right? He messed up. And you can keep lying to yourself and telling yourself, it's fine. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. The Bible's not true. Or God's not real. Or I can worry about it later. Right? You can keep lying to, to your leader and saying, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, I am a Christian. Your parents, your friends, right? You can keep telling yourself you're good enough. You can keep telling yourself that, that God wouldn't really send you to hell or that you'll have time later to repent. Right? Or you can be like Adam and, and keep trying to point the finger at someone else saying, well, they're, they're worse than me, God. They're worse. I'm not like them. And see, you can't erase the consequences of your sin just like Adam couldn't. Adam couldn't cover it up. He couldn't hide from it. He couldn't blame someone else. It was squarely on him. And that's where you sit tonight if you are not a Christian. Your sin is all on you. You can't pass it off. You can't push it to the future. It's all on you right now. And what's crazy, reading this passage, what I realized, it's thinking about taking responsibility and, and Adam and sin. And who took responsibility for Adam's sin? Who took responsibility for Adam's sin. I want everyone to go to Romans 5 again. Remember how we talked about how sin entered the world through one man, right? It was one person's fault that sin entered the world. Well, Paul moves on from that. Go down to verse 18, chapter 5 of the book of Romans, verse 18. He says, therefore, right, as one trespass, right, one sin, Adam's sin in the garden led to condemnation, right? Judgment, guilt for all men. So one sin, Adam's sin, led to guilt and condemnation and punishment for all men. So one act of righteousness 
leads to justification, right? Being made righteous in life, right? Not death, not death in, right? Remember Adam, if you eat the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Well, this leads to life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Who is the one man whose obedience makes many people righteous? Jesus. Jesus took responsibility for Adam's sin. Jesus said, I know Adam messed up, but I will suffer the consequences for his sin. And I'll suffer the consequences for your sin. Your sin. Jesus took responsibility for what you can't take responsibility for. You can't take responsibility for your sin because if you do, you'll end up in hell forever. That's the responsibility of of transgressing God's law, of breaking God's rules. Jesus took responsibility for that, but you have to trust him. Remember that verse we talked about, Proverbs 28, 13? It says, he who confesses his sin and forsakes it will receive mercy. You know what some other words for confess and forsake are? It's to admit and to turn. So confess your sin. Bring it into the light. Stop hiding your sin. Admit, I am a sinner. Stop trying to prove that you're, you're some great kid. It's okay. Admit your sin. Agree with God that you are a sin. Stop covering yourself with your, with your fig leaves and, and bring your sin to the light. All of it. And then trust that even though you aren't good enough, Jesus is good enough. Jesus is, he was good enough 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. And then if you really believe that and you trust that it's because of Jesus I can enter heaven, not because of anything I do, then you will be willing to give up everything to follow him and you will forsake your sin, right? It says he who confesses and forsakes his sin, right? Don't just admit that you are a sinner. Even the demons know that they're sinners, right? But turn from your sin and you will receive mercy. You won't have to deal with the consequences of your sin anymore. And so it might seem like there's, there's two messages here, and that's because there are. There's the message of take ownership of your, of your life and take responsibility for, for what you have going on, right? Whether it's your sport or your room or your family or your chores, take responsibility for that and own up and be a man and, and grow up and start practicing for the big things you'll have to do later. But then also you have the responsibility of your, your entire life of, of sin, and you have to do something about that. And the only thing you can do is say, I can't do anything. And trust the one who did something for you. See, all of you are, all of you are male. But not all of you will be men. For the rest of your life, you're going to be faced with situations where you can either be a bystander and watch something happen and decide to do nothing. Or you can step into it and say, I'm, I'm going to be a man and, and take ownership of this and do something about it. And do what God has called you to do. So I exhort you tonight, do what God has called you to do. Don't back down. Don't be scared of it and own it. And when you mess up, because you will, admit it and face the consequences and move forward. So let's pray and we'll go to small groups. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are 
the perfect leader, um, that you initiate things, you make things happen, you loved us first, you are a perfect father, God, and we're grateful for that. Thank you for sending your son. Now, if we trust him, we don't have to, to be scared of the consequences of our sin. We don't have to, to run when no one is chasing us, and we can be bold and free because we know that when, when we sin, you have paid for it, and that it is only because of Jesus that we can be with you anyway. So, of course, if we sin, we can't disqualify ourselves from, from what Jesus has already done. But I pray that we would take ownership of our lives because we love you, and then we respond to, to, your, to your grace with, with forsaking our sin, turning from it, and, and doing what you've called us to do. You've called us to be men, God, so I pray over these young men in this room that you would raise them up to be, to be men who lead their families well and who lead their, their children well and lead in their work and make a difference for you. And I know that none of that will happen if they don't start doing that now, um, tonight, and tonight. So I pray that that would happen, that these young men would take responsibility of what they're given now, and because he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. So I pray that um, they would practice that now and, and take ownership of their life now, um, because the young men that they, they are is the old man that they will be. So I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I think.